Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'm the host of the channel today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Nancy Matina, the author of Uncommon Anthropologists, Gladys Reichard and Western Native American Culture. Nancy, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this book is a biography of Gladys Reichard, who is remembered today as a student of Franz Boas and an ethnographer of the Navajo. Um, but in many ways, she's actually not very remembered. There isn't a lot of uh, work that's been done on her. And your book is her first full-length biography covering her. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in her and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, the thing that is most unknown about Gladys Reichardt, I think, in the anthropological community, is that she was um, as much of a, of a linguist, a student of Native American languages, um, as she was an ethnographer. Um, I think she preferred to refer to herself as an ethnologist because back in the day that encompassed the study of, you know, human culture, which included language and uh, cultural uh, anthropology, et cetera. So, um, for some reason, uh, for many reasons, actually, she um, was kind of erased from uh, not only the history of American anthropology, but the history of uh, Native American Indian linguistics. And um, But I happened to have done graduate work in Native American Indian linguistics and got a PhD in that subject from um, Simon Fraser University in, in the 90s. And I studied a a sister language to the one that she worked on, the Kirtling Salish language. And she um, was a constant, uh, her work was a constant reference for mine. Um, and so I knew her name, I knew her linguistic work, but I knew nothing else about her. And uh, when I started many years later casting around for a sabbatical project, um, I thought of her. I was no longer teaching linguistics. I wasn't really practicing as a Native American linguist anymore, but um, but I did want to do a scholarly project for a sabbatical. And um, having moved to Arizona from the Northwest, I started looking at um, people that I could uh, write about, thinking that this would be a, a good way to kind of bring together various threads of my career as well as my interests. And I came across Gladys Reichardt, whose papers uh, happened to be, or a good chunk of her personal papers happened to be in the Museum of Northern Arizona, about 90 minutes north of where I live in Arizona. You know, you've, you've really done uh, a lot of work in this book. It's, it's very, very closely researched and the density of quotation too, we can really see you working with primary materials. So it looks like you really um, were enchanted by the subject, uh, even though the, the path to this might've been a little bit wayward. Well, you know, what what happened was that I started reading about her, you know, just randomly anytime you know, I just do a Google search and just, you know, collecting materials and every account of her, uh, none, none full length, but every account really depicted a very different person from the last one. I mean, it just, there was no coherence to who this person was, you know, once I got interested in her as a person, as well as, as a scholar. And so I was just really struck by all the mismatches. You know, one one author would describe her as, you know, very lonely and um, and unimaginative. And the next would say, 
that she was really submissive to her mentor, Franz Boas, one of her mentors, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, it just it just didn't an, a, add up because I knew that the strength of her work in linguistics, in Native American linguistics. But then I was reading about, you know, how um, uh, sort of dull she was when it came to ethnography. It just it just didn't add up. So when I decided and I had enough material to go forward with the with the book, of course, I had to have kind of a thesis. I mean, it wasn't just going to be, you know, one damn thing after another. I I realized that I had to really document everything that I discovered because it hadn't been done before. Everything else, frankly, was sort of uh, part of a whisper campaign against her, as well as um, people sort of taking other people's word for who this person was, what kind of work she did, and what her sort of mission in life was. And so I just felt like if I was going to go to the trouble of writing a full length biography, sort of, as they say, a cradle to grave biography, that it, it better be documented. So it, it rests on something and not just a perpetuation of all the rumors that um, are out there floating around about her. Well, I definitely want to talk about that whisker whisper campaign. I think it's just, it's so fascinating that someone's life work can be shaped so much by others, but but before we do that, let's give pride of place to the established narrative that, that we now have because of your work. So who was Gladys Reichard and, and why should we remember her and what was remarkable about her? Well, uh, who she was, was uh, a, a woman of what they call Pennsylvania Dutch or, or Pennsylvania German descent who was born in eastern Pennsylvania in 1893. Um, same year as the Columbia Exposition was taking place in Chicago, I might add. Um, and uh, she was born in a small slate mining town, a uh, couple hundred, uh, excuse me, 2,500 people or so, really a, a village. Um, and uh, for some reason, she decided, you know, at an early age, she was going to go to college. She wanted to become a, a physician like her father. And uh, she ended up at Swarthmore College uh, doing essentially a pre-med course. Um, and then her, her final semester, her biology professor was uh, talking about some evolutionary ideas and mentioned uh, Franz Boas and his work um, in anthropology. And uh, it just clicked. And that's what the, that she was just drawn to that. So she applied to Columbia and she was accepted into the graduate program in anthropology at Columbia. And during, um, from then on, basically from 1919 on, she was an anthropologist. And in those days, being an anthropologist meant it uh, wasn't completely for field anthropology. She didn't do much with physical anthropology. She certainly didn't do much with archaeology. But she really uh, was the first American woman to focus her doctoral work and then subsequently her career on uh, linguistics, uh, the study of unwritten languages and the systematization of their grammar. Um, so at, at that point, uh, from 1919 on, she became this incredibly uh, adventurous, accomplished, and wealth, well-regarded linguist. She was at the center of the so-called Boasian circle. Um, and she uh, had, uh, alongside her, uh, people like Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, um, who had went on to achieve quite a bit more popular acclaim, but uh, Reichard was right there in the mix with all of them, and um, she uh, taught at Barnard College for 32 years. It was the 
only faculty member in the anthropology department, which essentially was created by her, for her. And um, then she died in 1955, uh, very uh, well-regarded, lots of friends, amazing accomplishments. She had so many firsts, it's sort of embarrassing to, you know, sort of list all those things. But um, she was truly a pioneer, a free spirit, loved the outdoors, was funny, um, as I said, had lots of friends. Um, and then within five years of her death, she was she was just sort of gone. Uh, she was gone from the... Uh, so, so how did she, uh, uh, so first, I, I, I think it's interesting for people to remember how anthropology at Barnard got started. Uh, so it's, it's, I just want to really highlight that, but you know, when I think if you asked many people sort of who was Boaz's close disciple, they would think of Benedict or maybe Mead, but you show us that Reichert and Boaz really had a kind of connection that was just very, very different from those two. She rented an apartment in his house. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually been to that house. Um, so across, <laughs> yeah. that's cool. No, I haven't been inside, but because I don't know who lives there now, but I I made sort of a pilgrimage to New York uh, City several many years ago, and uh, one of the side trips was to cross the river and uh, go see Boaz's old house, and it's still well, there. I, I, I want the address. I want the address. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, in any case, um, yeah. So they they had you know it was just a big house on the right there on the palace. And that it's not a mansion or anything. It was just a big, very functional house. And the top floor was an apartment because Boaz was oh, Boaz and his family were always hosting uh, people from you know other scientists from around the world. And at some point, uh, uh, yeah, before the depression, um, she started renting there so that uh, she drove and he didn't, and she loved to drive. So she'd drive him to, to work every day, basically. You know, for fifteen years she lived there. Um, there were reports that she was there for. A year or two, but no. As a matter of fact, she was a his tenant for the family tenant for about fifteen years, all total. You know, a lot of people when they read about Boaz, um, once they get past sort of the initial stuff about him being sort of opposed to racism and uh, creating American cultural anthropology, which is that story is a little more complicated. A lot of his students don't remember him very fondly. You know, Sapir and Lowy they. They they describe him as being very demanding and not extremely empathetic, but she really appears to have hit it off with him. Absolutely. And in fact, I'd say that one of the more intriguing things to me about Reichardt's story, I mean, of course, I really did uh, fall for her, as, as others have said about her when they read her letters. I mean, she's just a, a really lively, engaging uh, intellect. It's just really fun to be in her presence but uh, one of the things that just over and over uh, came through from the research that I did was that that the whole story of Boaz and the Boazian circle and all of his, if you want to call them acolytes, he wouldn't, but his students, um, they there was there's been a real mythology that's built up about him, and um, what we saw in the late 20th century was a lot of effort by. Uh, obviously, younger anthropologists of that era, um, really trying to disown Boaz and um, and displace him. And the irony of, of that is that the whole myth came from his foes, essentially his rivals, who were many of whom were his uh, students. 
Um, there was a real kind of uh, uh, desire to topple Boaz as the leader of American anthropology. I mean, after all, he'd been uh, sort of at the helm of American anthropology since the, the, at the least 1890s. And so by the time, uh, particularly the Mead and Benedict generation came along in the 1920s, um, there was a, a very concerted effort to um, relieve Boaz of his command. And um, it was that kind of um, uh, just sort of professional ambition that ended up driving the myth that Boaz was this controlling, domineering, uh, sort of um, close-minded um, individual who was just all about power and uh, was not particularly compassionate toward uh, Native peoples or their their uh, many uh, many ailments that were inflicted on them by dominant society. So there was this whole picture that was built up of him being this really bad guy. And when in the late uh, uh, 20th century, when there was this sort of revulsion against colonialism and, you know, we wanted to rid ourselves, and that is to say those anthropologists wanted to rid themselves of the stigma of having been involved in this uh, exploitation of Native cultures for uh, their own benefit. You know, Boaz was a perfect scapegoat for that. But the fact is, he wasn't a scapegoat for that at all. We owe the entire um, scientific framework that underlies the civil rights movement <laughs> and the human rights movement that we are so we take so for granted today. Um, we owe that to Boaz. I mean, it was, mm. he, it was he who said to the anthropologists of the 19th century who were busily making the case for a racial hierarchy using anthropology as the discipline to shore that up. He said to them, uh, you're making the case that um, that there are these racial hierarchies. And of course, race meant more than just skin color in those days. It had to do with any physical or any uh, differences of appearance or behavior. And uh, you're making the case for uh, to discriminate be- based on these hierarchies, and uh, you've given us no scientific proof. So here's an idea: why don't we why don't we posit that all people are created equal? Um, that appearance and behavior are due to other factors that are not relevant to um, uh, to understanding, you know, how human society functions, and uh, let's. Let's assume that there's a unity there and then go out and find the evidence to support that. So he essentially flipped the whole racial paradigm on its head and that, that freed women and people of color and uh, minority cultures everywhere to consider themselves to be equal until somebody else proved otherwise. And that was, that was crucial. That's crucial to everything that we understand about um, you know, what, uh, how society works today. And, uh, you know, Riker didn't just know him. I want to, I want to talk more about her work, but just to get some of the context down, she was also very close with Elsie Clues Parsons, which is a, someone who we might not, some people might not have heard of, but I think historians recognize as a, a real major figure who had that same kind of political charge and also was very important to the discipline. Riker and her were, were very, very close, right? Very close, yes. In fact, I would say that because, um, you know, Boaz was extremely busy and he was also, um, 
you know, he had a lot of people to be thinking about. He had so many projects going and he was, he was very involved with uh, the work of his students and the work of, of his uh, colleagues so that, you know, he didn't have a lot of time for chit chat and Parsons um, who I consider to be Boaz's intellectual soulmate. I mean, they were just both completely committed to essentially a social justice agenda using the discipline of, of anthropology to, to get there, uh, to move things forward. Um, that, you know, there was just this sort of woman-to-woman bond between Reichard and, and Parsons that, you know, that just wasn't possible to have with Boaz. I mean, he just had too much going on. And Parsons was also very busy, but she was, uh, you know, 20 years older or so than Reichardt. And she was, uh, that Parsons was a mentor to Reichardt. There's no question about it. And the fact that Parsons didn't have a a faculty position, didn't seek one, didn't need one um, to do the work she wanted to do, um, meant that it was very, very easy to um, write her out of the sort of the, you know, the the, uh, the mythic narrative of the history of anthropology, history of American anthropology. She didn't fit into the academic model through which that, um, that history is traditionally written. Parsons was um, independently wealthy and she, um, she wrote her PhD on uh, Gabriel Tard, who is a social theorist who's sort of come back into the vogue in the past 10 years a little bit. And she was she was a reformer and a progressive, and some of her political tracks on the equality of women kind of they kind of read um, they they read in a very contemporary way. They they feel very fresh, and if you read some of her um, uh, the some of the things that I've read are like these sort of ethnographic appendixes to the genealogies that she did. They 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 just read like lovely little novels they're remarkable little gems hidden away in a lot of these texts that are that are open access she is really was a remarkable person absolutely i mean she it's it's funny because while i was doing this research of course i was trying to learn uh, a lot about a lot of people and parsons of course was one of them and fortunately there's an excellent biography of her um by uh, desley deacons but um but time and again, I would see in the fairly, you know, current recent literature, anytime Parsons' name was mentioned, it was always Mrs. Parsons, which I found in- incredible, you know, that in, that in, you know, 2012 or that in 19, in the 1990s, people are referring to Elsa Clues Parsons, who was this brilliant scholar, sociologist for the first half of her career, a, a really productive um driven anthropologist and folklorist in the second half of her career, and that she's still being referred to as Mrs. Parsons and being basically billed as a philanthropist above all, which is just ludicrous. The fact that she was able to finance her own scholarship, you know, really has been held against her in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so it leads you to wonder about how is this, you know, history of anthropology built? I mean, what sort of were the were the premises on which it was built? And then, of course, that leads you to the question of who is it who wrote the history of American anthropology in the 20th century? And, and that's a question that, that leads you right back to the students of Franz Boas, who were not uh, sympathetic to his social justice, which I call a humanitarian uh, thrust. I mean, I, I, I'd like to come up with a better word, but it strikes me that what Parsons and Boaz and Reichardt had in common was this commitment to what I would call humanitarian 
anthropology. And we've come around back to that, but there was a time uh, through much of the 20th century where um, uh, we lost the thread of that. And, um, and I'm pretty sure I know who's responsible for that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because when I teach my history of anthropology courses, I often point to the post-World War II period as being very different than the interwar period. And um, so I'm glad that someone who actually studies this um, thinks that that's right too. But I, so uh, Reichard was really a, the, an insider. She was really much closer to these central figures than people like Mead and Benedict. And I'd love to talk with you more about Parsons, you know, the reaction to her from even the people who took her money. Some, some people like Krober really liked her and then other people did not. But I, we do have to talk about uh, Reichard. So she, she, like so many other people, did field work in the Southwest. And um, I knew of her uh, as I study the Pacific, I study Papua New Guinea. So I'm not at all an expert uh, on indigenous people in North America, but I did know about her book, Spider Woman. And, and, and that ethnography is a, a prime example of an ethnography that is that is sort of alive and vibrant and has a sense of, of style and humanity um, and was written at a time when a lot of people today assume that, that no ethnographies had that quality. Can you tell me about her fieldwork in the Southwest and, and that book and how it came to be written and what it's about? Sure. I'll try. It's hard because uh, my, my, the thing I want to say that connects really Parsons and Reichard where, where spider woman, uh, the book spider woman is concerned is something that I once heard Ken Burns say, you know, the documentarian say about um, his work on the Roosevelt's. Uh, you might remember that a few years ago he came out with a very, very long um, uh, video uh, document uh, documentary on the Roosevelt's. And what he said was that the thing that caught him most by surprise when he started researching their lives, and this would have been um, Eleanor and Franklin and then Teddy, uh, the three of them were the focus of this documentary, um, is what surprised him so much was um, how modern they were and how mm. sort of current their their interests were. And I, that really stuck with me the whole time I was working on um, Reichardt's earlier, early part of her career. And, and that meant the time that she was uh, uh, sort of following Parsons' lead uh, to the extent possible. And, and that's the thing when you read Spider-Woman is it's just hard to imagine this was written in 1934. I mean, because when you fast forward to the the 80s, when you have um, people questioning about the, you know, the um, the way ethnographies were written uh, uh, until that point, and that we have, you know, the um, James Clifford's writing culture book with all the essays saying how, gee, you know what, ethnography turns out to be a lot like literature. Maybe it's travel writing, maybe it's um, a memoir, but it's, it's not just ethnography. It's not scientific. Well, you know, there's not a word, not a, a word said about Reichardt's Spider Woman or Reichardt herself in that in that entire volume. And there were many essays that followed on that same topic of, you know, how subjective is ethnography. Well, in fact, in 1934, Gladys was Reichardt was simply following Parsons' lead and just approaching the writing about other cultures as a writing task. <laughs> she was quite conscious that she was writing a story of her experience with those people. She was not describing 
you know, the Navajo. She was writing about the, the time she spent with these people. And and the book itself, it's really interesting. It starts with the most sort of cinemagraphic um, opening, which has not got the hero anthropologist front and center. The hero anthropologist, in fact, doesn't appear for several paragraphs in, and that's in a you know poorly lit hogan um, being you know sort of put up as an object of display for the weavers who are deciding whether or not they're going to take her in. So you have this uh, this real anomaly when you read Spider Woman. If you've if you've read other ethnographies of, of that time period, um, with the, you know all the different headings for you know ceremony and religion and childbirth and all these other headings of you know they're supposed to bring out what this culture is and what it's like. So Spider Woman is a story. There's no question about it, and the author is not unclear about that. Reichard is talking to you. I mean, she doesn't name herself, uh, but she is. Uh, it's just a. In that sense, it's a kind of memoir, and I've heard people refer to it as that. But I will say that the problem with her, for her in her day, was that when that book came out, it was not considered science. And so it was not widely reviewed. It was considered popular work, and it was, of course, um, uh, dismissed by other anthropologists on those grounds. And it, it's taken a long time. The book's been constantly in print. Um, it's now a downloadable, free downloadable book. But uh, the, the essence is that you are uh, writing along with a, a sympathetic, uh, living uh, uh, persona who is, um, you know, just uh, showing you a, a bit of, of what she experienced and and how she was accepted or rejected or or responded to um, by people that she who were strangers. I mean, she was a professional stranger, but uh, they made room for her. And what happened happened, and so it doesn't have maybe the plot that a novel might have, but it uh, has plenty of of insight as to you know what it means when people with very different worldviews come together and try to be friends. You know, I think it's so fascinating to imagine. What ethnography would be like if people took their lead from Parsons instead yes. of Malinowski? Yes. I mean, we'd be in a different world. Absolutely. Well, as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I don't mean to get away from Parsons because there's no question that that she is still underappreciated and still it, it, we've not sort of circled back to give her the credit for having started this whole idea of dealing with uh, uh, minority peoples, native peoples, as other humans, as equals to us. I mean, that that's was revolutionary at the time. It's and maybe unfortunately still has some revolutionary uh, value now. But um, but the fact is that I often wonder how we would be, how we would have done um, anthropology. Uh, I'll have to leave linguistics aside. I've never had an anthropology course in my life, but. Um, but I wonder how anthropology would have been done um, in the 20, late 20th century if uh, the field had followed, had continued with uh, the Boazian approach, the sort of social, social justice approach, um, the search for the truth, the search for knowledge, not the search for fame and influence, but the search for, for knowledge um, with partners um, from all walks of life. If we hadn't followed that, which of course was the heritage that that uh, Reichard pursued, 
um, instead gone with the so-called personality, a culture and personality school, basically um, the, the Margaret Mead um, thrust, which was to reignite the, the love of authority and that basically every anthropologist um, to gain power, influence, and prestige needed to um, assert her authority. And that authority was not to be questioned after a certain point when enough there had been enough scholarship done, enough production, um, enough PR. And uh, so we went down this path of um, creating this monument to the authority of the knowing anthropologist instead of staying on the path of trying to find out what are people made of? What do they want? What are they, what's the range of the human imagination? That was Boaz's project. That was Parsons' project. And it was Reichardt's project. But instead, we went on the search for fame and ways to fix culture, to fix American society in the, in the wake of the Great War and other disasters. You know, I think um, if people, maybe, maybe, the Cold War was a blip, and the moment that we're currently in in anthropology and uh, Reichardt's life and period, maybe those will turn out to be the normal thing for anthropology as we move forward. Because I think if you look at what contemporary anthropology is doing today, the aspirations of people like um, Julian Stewart or or Clyde Cluckholm, um seem very, very remote and distant. And uh, you mentioned Mead as incarnating that a certain kind of uh, scholarly authority, uh, Cold War authority, um, which I think is true. I agree with you. But normally, when when we think of the uber Cold Warriors, people like Klukon come to mind. And he's definitely connected with the Reichardt story because they both worked in the Southwest and she she worked with Navajo people, Right. Right. Well, that yeah, that was a big chunk of her career. But yeah, of course, as you know from reading the book, Reichardt and Kluckhorn were, they weren't uh, at loggerheads because Kluckhorn was a very, very calculating person and he was very determined to um, be sort of the male Margaret Mead. I mean, he wanted the prestige, he wanted the attention, and he got it. And um, he did that. Um, some would say at the expense of his um, sort of scholarly uh, code of honor. But the fact is that um, they they tried to work together, but he did everything that is Reichardt and Klukon did in the Southwest, in the area that people now refer to as Navajo studies. And um, But, you know, they were friendly at first because Klukon saw that he, he was kind of a later rival. So he um, saw that he could get something from Reichardt in terms of her data and her connections particularly. But ultimately, you know, he was really uh, a player and he really needed to get Reichardt out of the way so that he could dominate the field. And he was uh, happily joined by many others in the, many other men, particularly in Navajo studies uh, of that time in, in doing that. When second world war came along, he just really got a big boost for um, <clears throat> anybody who wanted to step up and, uh, defend nationalism was more than welcome uh, to join in the fray. And Reichardt stepped away from that. Klukon stepped into it. They were not friends. I mean, they they he pretended to be her friend for quite some time, 
But uh, once the Second World War broke out, then at that point, uh, she was courteous to him, sent him advanced copies of her reviews of his work so that he didn't feel ambushed, but he did not return the courtesy one bit. And he did everything he could to uh, derail her career and certainly ruin her reputation. I mean, he was a prime, uh, excuse me, prime uh, suspect in uh, the answer to the question, you know, who erased Gladys Reichard? I mean, Clyde Cookcomb was quite determined to have that happen. He, He didn't live much longer than she did. So he didn't get too much of a chance, but just by ignoring her and, uh, you know, whispering behind uh, her back uh, about her illogic, you know, her, her being an irrational, illogical person. Um, that's, that's code for a woman. Um, he, he, he did, <laughs> I agree. I agree. He did, he did a lot of, of damage. Um, it, but of course, in, in the end, it was his uh, colleague and not, I don't think, particularly a close friend either, Margaret Mead, who um, really uh, is the one who did a number on Reichardt's memory. So I definitely want to talk about that, and I, I uh, but I feel like I would be remiss because I, I don't study um, uh, Navajo people, and I, I don't know very much about that area. Can you just, you, you know, in the book, you describe how author after author really run down Reichard's uh, findings about Navajo. Can you, can you tell me about her own relationship with Navajo people and um, how how the, 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 that power dynamic played out because some anthropologists had very exploitative relationships with the people they did research on and, and other ones had, had very warm relationships and some of them had warm and exploitative and some of them had cold and supportive relationships. I mean, what was it before we turn to what the anthropologists thought about her work on Navajo? What did, what did Navajo people, indigenous people think, think about her and, and how did they respond to her as a researcher? Um, I think it's pretty clear. I did try to do some interviewing on the Navajo reservation myself. Um, It really wasn't possible because it was just too much time had passed. Um, You know, the grandchildren of the people that Reichard worked with really did not know anything about her. And there were very few alive besides. So I could not get, you know, sort of straight from, uh, you know, living people, you know, what are your memories of or what is your opinion of even? Uh, Gladys Reichardt or her work. Um, but it, it does seem clear um, from uh, the, the ease with which she moved about in among all, across the entire reservation. I mean, she started working mostly um, in Arizona, but and, and really uh, Arizona, New Mexico border. But eventually she got more familiar with um, Navajo peoples on the western side of the res. But Basically, it's hard to believe that she could have gotten the kind of work, uh, uh, data, the information and uh, um, the stories that she gathered without uh, a real uh, mutual um, kind of affection. I mean, she credits um, being, um, <clears throat> excuse me, being taught by um, Red Point, uh, uh, the, the male head of the fam- Navajo family she lived with in the early 30s. Um, she credits his um, reputation among other Navajo medicine men with uh, her being allowed to continue to learn about ceremonial uh, practice and lore um, after his death because of the way social relationships uh, work in uh, Navajo country. And so by, by his uh, giving her 
sort of putting his imprimatur on her, then that gave permission and not only permission, but it, it made other Navajo medicine men um, continue to teach her and guide her and um, explain things to her um, long after Mingalito's death, Red Point's death. Um, so I also was told something early on in my research by um, Nancy Pereso, an anthropologist of the Southwest who's sort of recently retired from the University of Arizona. And she did uh, her, her dissertation in the 70s, if I think I've got that right, um, on um, commercial sand painting art by the Navajo. And one of the things that she said, uh, a few times I've talked to her about this, is that as she went around to all of the households on the reservation, maybe not all, but hundreds of households on the Navajo reservation, um, to inquire about you know people who are doing this commercial sand painting art, um, she said inevitably um, there would be a copy of Gladys Reichardt's Navajo Religion on the bookshelf. It might be the only book in the house, but it was there because those Navajo sent this commercial sand painter uh, artists were consulting her work. So that for me leads me to believe that she is um, welcome there anytime, you know, dead or alive. And the other thing is that, you know, I will say that it's, I assume this is true on every reservation, but perhaps more so on the Navajo, that the word anthropologist, the title anthropologist is not heard with great affection. Um, In fact, I didn't want anthropologists in the title of the book because I definitely wanted um, people I knew on the reservation to want to read it. But um, anthropologist has the connotation of somebody who's coming to uh, bug you and exploit you. And uh, Gladys Reichardt, I don't think, uh, fell into that category in the conversations I've had with people um, at Hubble Trading Post, where I've spent a lot of time, um, which is on the res. Um, I I don't think that she elicits the same reaction when you mention her by name. It's, it's tying her to the title anthropologist that gets you in trouble. And she did quite a lot of field work as well and had a pretty oh, yeah. deep commitment to that community. She did not drop in, you know, for a year and then write about it for, for 30 years after that. No, you know, she was there every summer. She was in Navajo country for 26 summers and two sabbaticals, three sabbaticals. Yeah. Yeah. And and her book describes just how beautiful she thought the countryside was as oh, well. Yes. It really sounds like it was the home of her heart. Absolutely, there's no question. I mean, she was. It's it's part and parcel. When she died, the the at the memorial, uh, sir, not service, but meeting that was held in her honor, her most distinguished student, Frederica de Laguna, um, who did not study Navajo, um, she. She said she had to sort of argue that we needed to look at Reichardt's work um, in terms of uh, this notion that probably it's a good idea if you're going to devote your, yourself to studying a people that you like those people. And <laughs> it seems funny now that you would have to say that, you know, bring that out is like, you know, it's OK to like the people that you're working with. Um, But that tells you what things were like in the first half of the 20th century in anthropology. We were really, uh, you know, people were really consumed with this idea of objectivity, which really meant this sort of value free that the researcher herself was was not to have any moral or or value based stance towards her research subjects, which is, you know, blows your mind. (laughs) But 
because that's not how it is now. But but that De Laguna felt it necessary to explain that, you know, Reichardt's work was so rich and so good because she actually liked the people that she worked with. Um, that's That sort of tells you uh, both about Reichardt, who, who was absolutely drawn to people, place, landscape, um, the, the cosmology, all of it. She didn't become Navajo, but she appreciated all of it. And uh, that, that that had to be sort of apologized for in some way in, in 1950, uh, 1955 is really kind of revealing, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, we haven't explicitly said this, so listeners not, might not get it, but Spider-Woman is about weaving and, and Reichard learned to weave and she, her focus was on art and she treated the, the product of um, all of the Navajo people whose work she studied as art, as beautiful, not, not as um, a material culture or folklore, which can somehow sometimes have a, a, a not a very positive ring. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, she had a history of, of studying, uh, let's say, indigenous art. But for her, it was always um, important to remind people that this was self-conscious artistry. This was making mm. beauty for the sake of beauty. And that was also off, that was, that was off limits in the 30s and the 40s. It just wasn't done because you weren't supposed to have any judgment about these things. You were just, you know, either to describe it or uh, alternatively to theorize about it. But you weren't supposed to have your own kind of emotional reaction to this stuff. And, uh, and but, but Reichardt just, I mean, you can say, it, I guess, a number of ways. She just wasn't able to like turn that off. You know, she approached, she came to people with her full self and in turn, she got people's full selves back. And as far as spider women, uh, woman and the, the, uh, the plot line that she went there to learn to weave, she did in fact go there to learn to weave, but that was in her own words, a kind of ruse because she really wanted to learn the language and there were no written grammars, uh, in English, uh, of Navajo at the time. Um, Sapir really never published any of the work that he did. And um, so she thought, you know, she had gone to Germany uh, right after grad school and uh, she didn't speak German when she got there, but she did by the time she left. So she had learned uh, a second language and she saw no reason why she couldn't do that with Navajo, even though she was, you know, well outside of the, <laughs> the best time of life to be learning a second language. But anyway, she decided that if she was going to learn Navajo, she'd need to have some sort of focal point for it. So she determined to uh, learn to weave and she was handy herself uh, in the domestic arts, you might say. Um, but she also was very interested from the start in um, getting close to a family that would eventually allow her to learn ceremonial arts. And so there's, it, it really, it's a three-pronged uh, motive for going to uh, live with the Navajo family in the, in the early thirties. And that was to learn to weave as a way to learn the language so that the language would allow her to make, uh, you know, get entree to um, the Navajo ceremonial life, which of and, course in involves the mythology as well. And she supported uh, a young man who I guess apparently is very famous. I feel bad. I've not heard of him as hmm. a Navajo artist. And he, Oh. He came to New York and um, she she helped him get by. So she was interested in extending these relationships back to where she was living as well. 
Absolutely. There, there, there are many others that, uh, other young uh, Native people that she helped get into college, essentially. Um, uh, you're referring to Adolph Bittney, um, mm. whose, whose name is uh, now, he's now known as A.D. Dodge, his sort of second half of his life. Uh, he was a painter of, of some renown. Um, but, but yes, uh, she was absolutely convinced that education was the key to everything and it for everybody. So when she met uh, young, curious, you know, uh, people who were, you know, wanted to uh, assimilate, I suppose you'd say, but uh, wanted to do more than, um, than stay on their reservation and, you know, suffer with all of their uh, family and, and peers. Um, she did everything she could to send them off to college and mentor them. Um, you know, it, it didn't pan out most of the time, but there's no question that um, in that day and age, that was unheard of. And, um, and she has not gotten very much credit for that, which of course I'd hope to change. She also mentored quite a lot of women at Barnard. Um, mm-hmm. You have a, a discussion of all of the people who went through her class and I'm trying to find it now in the book, but um, since I have the author here, maybe I can just ask you. You you mentioned De Laguna, but there are many other people who we've heard of today mm-hmm. um, who we don't think of as Gladys Reichard students, but but they were. Absolutely, as part of the erasure. I mean, really on every front. You know, she I, I was able to document uh, relationships, letters, uh, classes classes taken, classes given by you know by Reichard to, well, literally in the case of undergraduates, hundreds, because her anthropology classes, once they got started, she started teaching um, at Barnard in 1923. Um, and as I said, it was, it was, uh, she was the only person in the anthro department. And in fact, the anthro department didn't exist before she took the position. So in that sense, she founded the department. Um, it was the first anthropology department in a women's college in the nation, by the way. But yeah, every year she'd have 135 students in her um, her uh, year long survey course, anthropological survey course, and so he she just had a, she had an ability to reach women, uh, college women, you know, in the hundreds every single year. And then, of course, part of her um, Barnard College gig from the very beginning was that. Uh, Boaz uh, made sure that she was uh, invited to teach in the Columbia Graduate Department. That's also uh, uh, a little known fact. So that she actually taught in seminars and and various courses at Columbia um, from the start of her career in 1923, teaching career in 1923. So the thing is that she did not... um, it wasn't like today where you sort of get your, your name as a dissertation advisor on the, on the front page of the dissertation, you know, so she didn't get sort of recorded um, as a teacher at Columbia as a uh, dissertation advisor um, or committee member, but she was in contact with all of these women, many of whom she gave jobs at Barnard as teaching assistant or administrative assistant, anything to sort of keep them going because she was very uh, invested in having other women uh, come up behind her, so to speak. Do you think she taught Zora Hurston? Could she have been Zora Hurston? Oh, she did. Sort of no, first well, no, she was. She was. And I have, I had uh, uh, letters 
uh, between Reichardt and Boaz that uh, discussed Hurston. And uh, there was just a lot of stuff I wasn't able to leave in the book. My original manuscript was over 400,000 words. And so just to give you you a guide, the current book is about 120,000. So I had, I, I told uh, a colleague that one, one, uh, winter I spent unwriting my book because <laughs> I, I did not realize that, um, you know, what 400,000 words meant, you know, as to a publisher. And what did she, do you remember what she said about Hurston? I just, um, I'm asking cause she's so central to um, right. anthropology right now. Right. Well, it basically, so Zora Neale Hurston was a, a student at Barnard and that's of course where, where Reichard taught her and being that Reichard and Boaz were, you know, so often in, in a kind of, you know, friendly cahoots, uh, the, the correspondence I've seen is just basically Reichard saying to Boaz, so, um, you know, where are you going to, you know, where's, where's the money for Zora coming, going to come from, or, you know, what can I do to help, uh, Zora, you know, get this grant or, or make this field arrangement. So it was just the typical kind of, you know, mentory stuff you do, you know, when you're, um, you've got, you know, a great student, I mean, you just try to facilitate their progress, but, um, anything, uh, beside that in terms of the actual, uh, communication within a classroom. I don't know, but th- they definitely were both pulling for her, and and there's letters that that show that. Oh, that's great! I'd I'd love to see. You should take some of those extra three hundred thousand words and just <laughs> turn them into a couple of short. You know those old George Stocking articles where it's just the correspondence with some paragraphs wrapped around it. Right. Should you should do one of those? I'd love yeah. to. I'd love to see you know sort of more of that origin story. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of it. She was at the center of everything. So anybody that you can think of from that era, and even their descendants, um, you know, there's going to be a Reichard uh, line in there. Some you know, from either in Reichard's letters or in their letters. I did not go hog wild and try to go to all these archives where um, you know. Uh, people besides Reichard had had letters um, that might refer to her. But I'm sure if one did, there would just be this mountain of of uh, correspondence that points back to Reichard again and again as being, you know, someone who rooted for them and tried to tried to uh, help them launch their careers. Well, so we've talked about this in the course of this interview that, you know, she was she was so central and yet is now so forgotten. And we we talked a little bit about Cluckholm and Mead. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what happened, how how it was that she was forgotten? We we talked about the way in which Cluckholm, when he sort of didn't need her anymore, mm-hmm. um, was no longer sympathetic to her. Mm-hmm. And you describe Sapir's hostility to her in great length in this book. It's a, most recent writing that I've read in the history of anthropology prevent uh, shows Sapir in a very unflattering light. So I was not very surprised about that. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Cluckholm and Mead and Benedict both come off uh, in this book in ways, especially Mead and Benedict, in ways that many people would not be familiar with. I think many people imagine Benedict as as Boaz's anointed one and mm-hmm. the preserver of a, you know, what they said back in the 20s and the 30s as a like a a feminine rather than a masculine sensibility in anthropology and uh, a, a woman who was uh, unfairly um, picked on by Linton and other people who replaced her. But your take on Mead Benedict's appear clock on it's, it's quite a bit different than that. 
Yes, and that gave me a lot of pause as I was writing this book. As I said, I'm I'm not an anthropologist. I don't have the credentials for that. I'm just a writer, but someone who was involved, um, well, still to a certain extent am still, but was involved in uh, the study of North American Indian languages. And uh, so I just uh, was really, I had to really fight being cowed by the reputation of both Benedict, well, all of them, Benedict, Mead, Sapir, Clicon, not so much because I think he has, I mean, you see sites to him a lot, but I don't think that he has the sort of the popular uh, following that uh, the other three do or have, have earned. But um, I just, I, I felt like I was really swimming upstream, but the facts were what they were. And I read numerous biographies of Mead and of Benedict and sometimes one of both at the same time, plus a lot of their correspondence. I did not, you know, go to their archives and, and check out all their letters, but there were enough published letters because um, I always wanted to focus on words from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, and it just, again and again, it came back to the fact that um, Benedict and Mead um, were had a really personal grudge against Reichard, and it was a one-way street. Reichard had no reason to um, think ill of either one of them, and in fact, there's plenty of evidence that she was quite friendly and supportive. But for some reason, um, well, I think I know what the reason is. But, but what was Benedict, the reason, Nancy? Well, essentially, and I didn't discuss this in the book. I think that Benedict and Mead were um, really uh, had a lot of class resentment. Gladys didn't talk right. You know, she she was happy. She was perfectly comfortable with a a, a little uh, Pennsylvania Dutch or, or Pennsylvania German uh, twang and and usage in her dialect. Um, she didn't dress right. She didn't come from the kind of you know plummy Hudson Valley uh, background that that uh, Mead and Benedict did. Um, they they resented her from the get go, and the fact that she was so successful. I mean, time and again, her work was recognized and rewarded, and she was promoted, and she was you know she had all these research opportunities, and she just kept churning it out, and it was absolutely maddening to both Benedict and Mead. And I mean, there those two Benedict and Mead were very different people, but obviously they formed a super close bond. And, um, you know, the fact is that Mead was the kind of personality type, and I hate to say this because I'm much more interested in character than personality, but <laughs> as, it, as it turned out, um, Mead was, uh, at, when she started kind of losing the support of her fellow anthropologists and becoming this media sensation with popular audiences, um, she took it upon herself to declare herself a historian of American anthropology. And, and that's all fine and well. I mean, Obviously, you know, someone within the field can do take that position. But the problem is that she did not use any of the sort of his, uh, checks and balances that historians uh, are meant to have. So that when she writes the history of any given event in the first half of the 20th century in American anthropology, she's winging it. She's just telling the story the way she wants to. It's not corroborated. And what's worse is that after she wrote all of these materials, many of them were in support of uh, Ruth Benedict and trying to just kind of memorialize her and lionize her career. Then the next generation of scholars, particularly women, of course, but not, not exclusively, came along and they simply took Mead's word for it. And by not 
doing due diligence and going back and getting corroborating evidence, interviewing people who were not uh, Mead's followers uh, or Sapir's followers. Mead's version of the history, uh, you know, uh, won the day. And so what we have is we have this mythic narrative of the twi- of 20th century American anthropology, essentially written by Margaret Mead, and then echoed throughout the end of the 20th century and into the 21st. I mean, as recently, I think it's 2017, we had a book come out called The Boazians, which is precisely uh, in the sort of mythic model. It lays out the pantheon of the Boazian circle precisely as Mead would have wanted it. So that you don't have Parsons as being the most feminizing uh, figure in the Boazian circle. Um, instead, you have Benedict. It, it, just, it, it doesn't make sense when you step away from that that mythic narrative and and start uh, bringing in uh, evidence and, and documents from other perspectives. And that in that sense, Reichardt's story is a lens through which we can re-examine the whole history of American anthropology in the 20th century. And I think um, I think perhaps we're ready to do that. I mean, I, I think you're right when you said earlier that uh, today's anthropologists are much more uh, advocates for and social justice warriors, you might say, for the groups that they work with and, and study and learn from um, than they were at mid-century, 20th century. And so we've kind of skipped over this, if you will, Cold War era um, and uh, come back to our senses. And uh, But I will say that I think that's very much the case that it was Mead's fame and authority and um, credibility on which so much was built um, about the history of anthropology that it made it very easy for the Parsons and the Reichards and some others of the world, even Frederica de Laguna, who lived into the 21st century, um, do not have the place in American anthropology's uh, pantheon, so to speak, that uh, Mead and Benedict do. And, I, and you know, it's it, we don't have to delete them, but we need to enrich uh, our notion of who contributed to anthropology and and still uh, save some time for answering the question, what's anthropology good for? Mm. Because I think that's really the question that Boaz asked at the end of the 19th century and that Parsons and Reichard were completely committed uh, to answering uh, in, in with, with Boaz's phrase that anthropology is good for, um, to help us, uh, uh, commit to the struggle for freedom from prejudice. And that's not just, that doesn't just pertain to anthropology. It, it pertains to all scholarship. Mm. And it's not really a left or a right opinion. No. I think it's, no. it's a pretty basic commitment. Right. Well, thank you so much. That's a fantastic way to um, move this interview into its final stage. A lot of important words there. Um, so you've now, finished the Reichard book and it's out and people are reading it. Can you tell me what you're working on now? I'd love to. Yes. I mean, it's taken me a while to kind of, Reichard just sort of consume my life for so many years. I mean, she was a regular guest at our our dinner table. And so I've had to to move away from that. Um, Still, obviously, much admire her. But uh, but now she's kind of a, you know, a, a retired friend. Uh, And instead, I'm focusing on uh, another project that I hope will keep me in touch with my uh, Navajo friends. And 
And, and that is, I'm writing a biography of the person that you mentioned earlier, Adolf Bittany, who was uh, one of uh, Reichardt's many linguistic informants, a co-author, in fact, uh, of a linguistic paper, who then, after the Second World War, uh, came back to the res and uh, became a painter of some renown. And his name now is A.D. Dodge. And just as I was winding down the Reichardt biography, I discovered that um, in 2011, um, some of his, uh, well, his daughter uh, had put uh, A.D. Dodge's papers at the Beinecke Rare Books Library um, at uh, Yale. And I just went to visit that collection uh, in January. Fortunately, I didn't catch the coronavirus. Uh, but I was there for a week, and it's, he's a, a fascinating character who's, um, who's uh, it's not so much that he went unrecognized in, in this case, but he was, uh, he, he had some shady dealings that uh, kind of made people turn away from him. Uh, he died penniless, sort of, of course. But as a matter of fact, I can see now that um, he is a classic uh, example of an indigenous person. Um, particularly Navajo, but any indigenous person who's caught in what uh, I think Mary Louise Pratt calls a contact zone. And so he's between, he, he, he lived his life from 1912 to 1992 in this kind of um, speech community in which he was uh, expected to perform in a certain way. And he wanted to perform in the Navajo way. And he was just caught in the middle, but uh, produced some very beautiful art but also produced a lot of writing, which was basically crazy. But I, I think that the, what the story there is going to be that he was essentially parodying what he had learned from people like Reichardt, but most particularly Clyde Cluckhone, um, who sort of put on airs and said, you know, this is how it is in my culture. And uh, it, it makes for some fantastically interesting uh, linguistic uh, analysis um, of the sort of interlanguage that A.D. Dodge uh, acquired and deployed in the last half of his life, trying to get um, the dominant culture to listen to him. Wow. It sounds like a really, really interesting project. And I love the thematic connections with the Reichardt as well. So I, I look forward to seeing it. And thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Alex. 